Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. I'm joined by co-hosts this morning. Uh, we've got Rusty. Welcome to the cast, Rusty. Good morning, everyone. And we've got Josephine. Hey, Josephine. Hey, Kilda, everyone. Uh, wow, wowzer, wowzerunies! Like that is some of the most surprising news I think that's occurred in New Zealand poll in the last decade. It's, it's certainly up there uh, with the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, even without it seems particular foreknowledge uh, from her caucus, resigning live at a press conference earlier in the week. Yeah, it was uh, quite a shocking, um, you know, uh, announcement right at the start of the year. Um, there were some people who were speculating and predicting this, um, but still it came as a surprise, the timing, the fact that, you know, um, even the caucus wasn't aware. So, yeah, it was quite a, a shock. And I, I remember that day at work, you know, I work at the School of Government and, you know, it came to a standstill. Um, and I heard similar stories from other workplaces um, around Wellington. I mean, Wellington was in shock. Um, and all the responses that came afterwards, it's quite interesting to go into them and to see, you know, some of the speculations on why she did this. Um, um, well, you know, I have a perspective. I think it is, you know, because, um, you know, it, it looked like defeat was imminent and um, it was a calculated, um, you know, uh, exit uh, considering all those factors. I think that would have been the biggest factor. Um, but yeah, we can get into all of that. Um, yeah, but quite a shocking day uh, for New Zealand politics. Yeah, I mean, there were a few people who will claim not to have been shocked, but I, you know, the way I put it is they've predicted nine of the last five times that the Prime Minister was going to resign, that there's been a few pundits, um, who I won't name, um, who have sort of consistently been floating that balloon of, oh, is the big switch in imminent? Is she going to do a John Key with Grant Robertson and swap out? Um, so, but other than that, like, yeah, no, completely shocking. Like, I got a message from my mum and I didn't believe it. I thought that was just wishful thinking on her part. Like, it's um, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Is um, this another one of your pranks, mum? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's very much in the same vein as John Key's decision. Yeah. Circumstances and the drivers are quite different. And I, I guess the other one is um, Ardern's original elevation to the leadership of the Labour Party that, I mean, people had been speculating about, um, you know, that she was a future leader, but I don't think anyone thought that morning that Andrew Little was going to come out, resign and, um, you know, um, allow her to take over. So it's, it's kind of a nice symmetry there to her, her prime ministership. Yeah, and I had... Many people, friends from, you know, outside New Zealand um, messaging me and I lo looked at a lot of reaction in the media outside New Zealand and, you know, they were thinking that this is sort of unprecedented that a, a prime minister in power would step down. Um, this is, um, you know, uh, something that it's Jacinda Ardern style, but then uh, my job that day was to say that this isn't really that unprecedented in New Zealand politics. Um, you know, another prime minister not long ago did this and his resignation speech, he said this, almost the same words that 
my tank is empty. I don't have any fuel to continue because I was looking at it. And in 2016, um, you know, his um, approach, his speech was the many similarities with um, uh, John Key's resignation speech and this one where he talks about family and he also talks about having no fuel in his tank. So I was, you know, explaining to my friends outside New Zealand that this is quite common and even leaders in opposition, um, you know, step down when they see that they're not doing really well in the polls, um, whether it was, you know, Andrew Little's case, like you said, um, or even Green Party, you know, um, have had um, instances where the leader steps down when the polling goes uh, against them. So this is not um, really unprecedented in New Zealand uh, politics, but the way in which it came, the timing and all was quite um, shock- shocking. Yeah. yeah, I like even on this podcast, um, we have had a long-standing, half-joking prediction uh, that Ardern will stand down before her entire three terms is up. So if you're not a, a New Zealand politics follower, um, the standard rule here for the last as long as I've been alive, has been about three terms in power um, before you're kicked out no matter what. But mm. a lot of that rested on the idea that Grant Robertson, uh, the current finance minister, was going to have a swing and he'd step in to replace Ardern um, and get his moment in the sunshine. Uh, but he surprisingly, and I, I was surprised by this as well, um, didn't put his name forward and, and very, very quickly. Um, so Ardern announced that on the podium as well, that Robertson had given her permission to say uh, that he wasn't going to be putting his name forward for the leadership. And, and I think we can kind of make some inferences from this as well as to as to why um, Ardern has stood down, um, maybe with a bit more clarity than what we've been seeing uh, in the discourse. But Robertson choosing not to stand as well uh, says that they're looking for a continuity break. Um, the, the leadership, really, even when there are other deputy um, prime ministers, like, like Davis, Calvin Davis there, it really was the Ardern-Robertson show. Um, and to take them both yeah. out of the leadership roles, you know, in, in an election year, says to me that they're looking to move in a different direction somehow. Uh, and I don't know what that is yet. I, I, I'm not sure. But... Well, I think I hold that thought because Robertson has said that he's not, he wasn't seeking the party leadership we still don't know whether he's staying on as finance minister I think that's a pretty central test for me of whether you know Hipkins is definitely the the closest thing they had to a continuity choice the kind of minimum you know yes there's this tidal wave of change with Ardern resigning but um, Hipkins of the kind of three realistic contenders was very much the consensus continuity option and whether they double down on that kind of sense of continuity and nothing to see here, you know, yeah, Labour, the Labour Party are more than are doing, the fight goes on. Um, Robertson would be certainly, keeping him in the finance role would definitely be perceived as sort of the steadiest option. Um, whether it's the right option, whether it's an option that leads to victory, I think is something that um, is certainly debatable and I go back and forth on. But yeah, it'll be interesting to, I think that's the next big decision after who the deputy um, will be is what mm. becomes of um, Red Robo. Well, let's, before we get into the future, um, what what did we think of our doing? Spent, what, five years um, at the head of the Labour Party as Prime Minister. Uh, we often talk about the crises that she led the country through. 
Um, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, around how successful people think she's been as prime minister um, and the different uh, metrics, I guess, for lack of a better word, that, that are used to um, determine that. And yeah, now it's, just, it's cut off. There's nothing else for her to do uh, in that role. It, it's essentially over. What's the postmortem just sounds a bit bleak. Um, it, but I guess... First draft of history. <laughs> there we go. Well, for me, um, Ardern's legacy is very what do you say, clearly a Blairite legacy for me. Um, she continues in that third way neoliberal mold um, of going for, um, you know, continuation of those market-based um, economy, market-based solutions for uh, some of the market-produced problems. For example, the biggest example being Kiwi Build, which was introduced as a public-private partnership, which is not another word of <laughs> word for neoliberalism, in my view, and market-based solutions for uh, a crisis that was created um, by an unburdled, um, you know, market and investment market within the, you know, the, and the commodification of of our housing stock. Um, so that was a failure, and um, and people also talk about her, you know, her. Um, her leading us through crises and now like I would I would urge you know everyone in New Zealand to actually have a critical perspective about how she led us through the crises as well um, whether it is COVID crisis um, you know of course we have to think about COVID in, in terms of New Zealand's response but also in terms of the global response and because COVID came to New Zealand from you know over, overseas this is we needed a global response but um, you know, her um, response to COVID was good in terms of the medical um, sort of outcomes in New Zealand, um, keeping the uh, cases minimal, stamping it out in the early stages and so forth. But then when it came to addressing it globally, um, Ardern did not support the people's vaccine movement that would have shared you know, the medical technology globally uh, for poorer countries to address the crisis. So it came back to bite bite us again. So um, on the health front, I would present that critique. And on the economic front, you know, I was in Australia recently, and I heard that the Liberal Party over there, they had many progressive sort of um, interesting things during the pandemic, they provided bonus payments to the to nurses during COVID, they provided um, relief to international students. Now, international students is another area where during the lockdown, Ardern completely ignored international students, migrants over here. Um, and so there's many areas where we can critique her. Looking at the economic um, response to COVID, what we saw was a huge transfer of wealth um, to, to, the, to the already wealthy. And we can see Bernard Hickey did a study of this, and it, uh, he claimed that it was an unprecedented uh, transfer of wealth, um, rich becoming richer by about nearly a trillion dollars during COVID. So it's clearly a Blairite legacy. She sided with the wealthy. And, um, you know, we were I was hearing a lot of labor supporters or apologists talking about the improvements in child poverty. Now, child poverty is an area where, you know, Ardern wanted to make a mark at the beginning of her um, tenure. She said, this is the main, um, you know, 
purpose for my leadership and the improvements have been really minimal from um from 11 sorry from 12.5 percentile poverty down to about 11 that's like 1.5 percent difference and we still have over a hundred thousand uh, children in poverty living in poverty this is not a good result and when you look at maori and pacifica communities one in four Pacifica children and one in five Maori children are still in poverty. This is really not a good or trans far from transformative. It's not even a significant improvement in my view that we cannot allow this to continue. These are the areas where we need urgency. And if you look at the health sector, the health disparity uh, in accessing health still continues. Um, so I would um, I would regard that in all these areas that I, I mentioned, and there's a lot more to cover, you know, she has, she has not delivered. And education is another one. And this is where I'm going to critique Chris Hipkins as well, um, because in their, in their 2017 campaign, they said a fees free for three years, it would be the first year, and then they would do it you know, continue it on until it reaches three years fees free. And then they immediately abandoned it after coming into power. They abandoned the policy of post-grad allowance, which, per, you know, personally impacted a lot of people around me. So if you look at her um, performance across different areas, including COVID, right-wing parties in Australia in some areas had better uh, policies than you know are done so um, I think we need to put set aside those emotional responses and and not being carried away by her charisma and her charm offensive in her resignation stage this is the prime minister she had 50 percent of vote of New Zealand she had the political capital to do things and our pro our problems are continuing right so we need to hold the powerful to account. And this is the biggest role in my view, uh, or the biggest responsibility of the left. And so uh, I'm disappointed in people in the left who are glazing over her failures when she had that much political power and capital to spend, to actually transform um, the lives of people who are in need. Um, and she failed to do so and she, um, again and again capitulated to the interests of the wealthy and so yeah i'm i'm overall my assessment is it's a blairite um, legacy that uh, jacinda arden has continued in the crisis management is going to be you know the the it's kind of almost tried to say right that she is just in her term as prime minister what she's had to deal with has just been a constant rolling series of crises and um, I'll come to the kind of critiques about that in a minute, but I, I genuinely do have to acknowledge and, 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 and respect the importance of the decisions she chose to make and the way she chose to communicate because she didn't have to, and I think many of the other leaders we could possibly have had would not have responded initially to the um, March 15th shootings or to COVID um, or to White Island or, you know, rail off the list in the way that she did. And I, th I think that does matter. But I think, yeah, fundamentally, in many ways, she's John Key's greatest achievement in terms of the, the fundamental settings. Um, 
of of the country. Um, now, I'm sure if you were really looking to defend Labour, you could say, well, yes, they had all of these great transformative plans, um, but then the fight against COVID had to become the main priority. Um, and I wouldn't disagree that obviously, the, you know, um, the initial year and a half of the pandemic response put everything else off the table. But I think the, you know, she had this excellent acute crisis management, the longer term chronic crises that the country is facing in terms of climate resilience, in terms of the healthcare system, in terms of investment of infrastructure, education, child poverty, um, those crises have not been managed. And at best, they've run to stand still on all of those, those fronts under her leadership. Now, the government is not a monolith. Um, and not all of that kind of rests at her feet, but she is was the most powerful and influential player within that system. And the real failure to me is, I, I think your point, Josephine, about um, the political capital is exactly where I see the um, the failures come in, is that you know where they were, the amount of support and political capital they had at the end of 2020, the failure to invest that political capital to you know, and get a return on it, not not spending it, not wasting it in the way that they have and pursuing some sort of pretty technocratic but controversial reforms, but to maintain that sense of national cohesion around a, a, um, a collective project, building off the fight against COVID, pointing out the fact that they've... I, honestly, it felt like when Hipkins was interviewed yesterday morning in his hoodie that was the first time I've heard a Labour Party politician talk about we have a mandate from the people in quite a strong way and it's like you had you've had a majority for two years now that's unprecedented but there I, I, I genuinely don't know what it is we kind of I need a Labour insider to explain this to me they can't um, they can't <laughs> they're scared of well not in public this it still feels like they were scared of their own shadow um and that they were scared of what the Herald op-ed page might say um and they haven't been willing to pursue even their own modest agenda like I I, I think in a New Zealand context she's a kind of continuity with the Clark government in terms of the overall settings in in the country in the same way that John Key was but even to pursue a modest incrementalist you know social democratic agenda all the stops have not been pulled out and the the kind of what I'm hopeful for or no, hopeful is the wrong word. What I'm hoping for to see from Labour as they stare down mm. um, uh, a four point five point gap on on national is that they will begin to take some more chances and try to you know deliver on some meaningful changes because I I, I don't think you know I don't have to deal with more crises as a prime minister than anyone since Peter Fraser and that's only going to get worse. That's like the crises are just going to keep coming and we are going to need to build up a kind of systemic resilience to that as a country. Um, and I don't see the investment being made in that. And it worries me tremendously. Yeah, what we need is um, resilience workshops for individual resilience. Uh, to be, no. <laughs> yeah, it's... Thank you for the accurate summary of the, you know, post-2021 COVID response. Yeah, I, I think for me... Probably the most indicative, and this is, I understand this is harsh, but the most indicative event of Ardern's premiership 
was when she refused to take a stance at all on marijuana legalization mm-hmm. until it was too late. Um, and an environment that was like rife with like disinfo, you know, one of the things that Labour and um, the media and outriders like to talk about a lot. There's so much money uh, out there buying advertising, pushing false um, narratives around this. And literally Ardern coming out and supporting it would have put it over the line. And uh, she, she just chose not to speak up until until the end. And not even in regards to decriminalization. And the result of that referendum was we didn't get legalization. And then the entirety of the Labour government pretended that meant that the New Zealand public didn't want to decriminalize either. And to me, that is how this Labour government has operated. They have been scared of what they think the public is um, based on whatever electoral calculus they they use um, in parliament, which I want to be clear is very much not in line with public opinion sometimes. We saw it with some of the COVID response stuff where there was huge public support for health measures, uh, while the government took far more notice of extremists and radicals um, and slowly broke the health measures down. And this is at a time when public support was at high 70s, 80s, um, coming down from 90%. So I think there's a mechanical issue here with the way that Labour and their staffers uh, and their advisors determine how they're going to act. I, I don't think that even among third way proponents, they have managed to respond effectively to the age of social media. I, I don't think that all the inputs are right. I It is a continuity of, of kind of Blairism and, and Key and Clark, but only in the sense that it hasn't moved anywhere. I, I don't think it's third, I don't think it's a third way as it should be today because it relies, and, and overtly often relies on inputs from groups like Business New Zealand who are like very economic right-wing radicals um, or from the New Zealand initiative. That's an excellent point too. Um... To a far greater degree than, you know, the the stuff, the, the popular economics movements, um, which are which are bigger and have more support. There's there's a waiting issue and it has third wayism has never been able to respond to that because it's been tied up in technocratic mechanics that I think parliamentary systems are unable to escape from easily once that structure has been built. Can I just um, add to that? So it's really important to see, like, I'm just going to talk more about the point you said about taking advice from groups like Business New Zealand. Um, Ardern in 2017, like, I... I was hopeful. I was um, at the time at University of Canterbury. She came to our campus. Oh my goodness! It was you know Jacinda Mania at its its peak. Everyone. No, saying Jacinda Mania is misogynist now. <laughs> Be careful. Oh really? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> but it was there in the air. Everyone was hopeful, and and really for the good reasons. For good reasons, we thought we could get out of this trap of student. At least the next cohort of students could get out of the trap of student debt, 
and there were so many hopeful, um, you know, what do you say, signals coming from her campaign, transformative change, all that. But then once she came into power, like slowly, slowly, she started, you know, um, stabbing the progressives um, little by little. The first one I remember is in 2018, I think, abandoning of the capital gains tax. Um, and, you know, the reason provided was, was that, you know, um, New Zealand first was a handbrake. But even if that were the case, she could have said, we're not considering it for this term, but it won't be, you know, off the books for the next one or in the future, in my future as a leader. But she basically ruled it out for her entire career. So this, it's like, where is she getting we'll come back advice to that as well. We will come back to that. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. And also, like, right now I'm doing research on lobbying and I realized that her first, one of her earliest appointments after becoming prime minister was uh, G.J. Thompson as her acting chief, chief of staff. Now, G.J. Thompson is the director and owner of Thompson & Lewis, which is a corporate lobbying firm. So he came straight from corporate lobbying into the inside circle of um, the beehive and the prime minister. And straight after his stint, he goes back into corporate lobbying again. So it's like, who are these appointees in the prime minister's inner circle? Um, in 2018, again, we heard that um, she uh, appointed Tracy Bridges, who is again a corporate uh, lobbyist and PR person as one of her communications uh, people. And this came out in a controversy around the panel and RNZ um, not declaring that, she, you know, one of their panelists was actually working in the beehive. So a lot of um, incidents and also like, uh, in, in the current government, uh, Chris Farfoy was a cabinet minister. He resigned and went straight into corporate lobbying and started his own company called Dialogue 22. And, you know, if you look at the website, I urge you, you guys to go and have a look at Dialogue 22. Google it. Uh, at the front page, he says, I am a for former cabinet minister. I come with, you know, vast contacts in, inside, inside the government. And he's advertising it to the highest bidder of his services and when asked about this you know um, to media's credit a couple of media um, people asked um, questioned Ardern about the conflict of interest in this involved in this and all the information he has all the connection connections he have and information he's privy to as a cabinet minister of the country um, and Ardern just like you know she just um, dismissed the question saying that, look at the Transparency International ratings. Uh, we are one of the least corrupt nations and, you know, we do everything in good faith and we don't need any, you know, other formal regulation, regulations. We're all working for a country. So she, she basically just um, said those questions to the side and dismissed any, con any right, you know, really justifiable concerns that the people in this country have about, you know, the corporate capture of our democracy, how corporations and wealthy individuals are undermining our politics. And, and, and I don't think that labor is, is, you know, an exception to that. It's not just national and act that are, you know, in bed with corporations and vested interests, labor is too. And we must remember, like in the early part of Ardern's term, um, she and Grant Robertson were doing really well in the mood of the boardroom survey, because they were trying to impress the 
um, uh, the CEOs and the corporations and they were successful in it. One year, I can't remember which year it was, Grant Robertson was ranked number one. Well, in 2022, by the way, James Shaw was ranked number one by the CEOs in the mode of the boardroom survey, which says a lot about where the Greens and Labour have been in power um, over the last five and a half years. And so one more point I will add is that in 2018 or 19, I can't remember which year it is, Ardern set up this you know, despite all these links she already has with the with this, you know, the corporate lobbying community and corporations in general, see, she set up a new business advisory council, and she um, appointed none other than Christopher Luxon as the leader of this business advisory council. So I love this um, shit so much. <laughs> This is amazing, isn't it? So this is labor for you. And that's Jacinda Ardern for you. She had no intentions to actually transform those in my view. If you look back and look at all these appointments, the chief of staff that she had being a corporate lobbyist, her connections with people like Neil Jones and, you know, <laughs> Clint Smith and the others, these were high up. These people were high up in um, in labor. I think Neil Jones was the uh, communications director. Um, during the 2017 campaign, really high up in labor with all those connections, and they're openly advertising it. Uh, Neil Jones's firm is called Capital. Have a look at Capital's website. He openly um, advertises his proximity to power um, in that website. And very interestingly, Capital has recently appointed Ben Thomas, who is a <laughs> National Party insider, as one of their directors. So when that happened, I was confused because, you know, obviously these corporate lobbyists are working together behind the scenes. But right now, I'm, you know, my analysis is that they were seeing this coming, that uh, National might come into power. So they need access international party as well and that's probably the reason why they appointed someone like ben thomas um, in their lobbying firm but yeah it's really important that we pay attention to these things corporate lobbying yeah. um and uh, vested interests and their influence that's, on government. that's really key yeah. right there's uh the prima facie like approach um of of labor of Ardern, um and then there's what's actually happening um, and if we're not clear, clear about it, there is a risk that we get kind of get caught up in this kind of transformative uh, speech um, around further, faster, or, or whatever um, kind of campaign rhetoric you want to use. Uh, and their supporters uh, and and other people who do have hope don't feel the need to push them in in the ways that uh, it seems we absolutely need to be um, if we are going to get results. And something we've talked about in the cast, and I think. Many people were talking about early on uh, from the left is the risk of Ardern being New Zealand's Obama. So heaps of rhetoric, like got heaps of people activated, you know, running on hope and then completely failing to deliver. At best, switching off large parts of the electorate so that they they didn't vote. At worst, you know, Trump uh, kind of follows in the wake of that um, as a result of disenfranchisement. Um, of continued corporate control and a feeling that people had been left behind uh, by by their leadership. And, you, you know, racism, fascism, whatever, uh, can tap into those feelings uh, and, and, and can very effectively. And 
not to say that you know that the people agreeing with the that rhetoric are are good to do so um or, or are correct to do so it's just the nature of politics and we see it happen through history again and again um the slow degradation of civic society the destituteness um of large tracts of the population ending up with far more authoritarian mm-hmm. kind of responses than than people want it's frustrating to me how how clear it was that this was a risk and how little work was put into mitigating it yeah and i think that's that comes back to my core kind of critique of the robertson ardern government is the failure to provide that alternative that you know um clearly by 2017 yes i mean it's very contingent and then 2020 there was this massive swell of support for let's do this for what people for the image of the Ardern government and this idea of change and improving things you've got to contrast that also with the fact that New Zealand is like on balance a conservative country like I think that's the that is often the thing that gets miss or I even forget when I'm like no labor go further people will reward you it's that for 60% of the country, if you own a house um, or are on the path to owning one, the current neoliberal policy settings are the best you've ever had, you know? And it's not sustainable. It's not going to continue like that. But there are very rational reasons why people have have stuck with that. But I think to move people beyond that and to get them to, to see a, a longer-term picture of sustained house price growth can't go on for another 10 years. Um, and we're going to have repeated storm incursions destroying infrastructure all over the place. We're going to have an aging population and an unpaid health workforce, but take your pick. To get people to make that leap um, to a sort of, again, collective state project, you need passionate, charismatic um, leaders. And Ardun had that. And where she deployed it, it was it was in a... It was in survival mode, you know, it was, and I think this is the, I think the points about the engagement with um, kind of corporate lobbyists and sort of the business roundtable class of New Zealand, I, I, I think we've talked about kind of continuity with kind of Clark era of, of government. This is, I think, an area of contrast is that, yes, you know, um, Clark coming out of the 90s put in this effort to make Labour seem respectable. But I don't think there was, especially with Cullen and finance, they they knew who their enemies were. They didn't, they knew they had to engage with business, but they they realised that they weren't there for business. And I think that's the problem. And this is more about Robertson than, than Clark, in, in all honesty, but I think it's Labour's kind of upper echelons generally, genuinely felt after 2017 and in early 2020 that they could supplant national as the kind of natural party of the governing class and it's it was never going to work it hasn't worked yeah um we've seen it with hawaka ikenoa we've seen it with um fair pay agreements we're seeing it with the employment insurance scheme and there's there's probably other examples that i I can't call to mind but where they've tried to do these collaborative initiatives their opponents have just stonewalled them and slow rolled them and delayed them. And it's why in five and a half years, they haven't been able, you know, they've only just been able to pass FPAs and it's a 50-50 bet whether those will remain in place after October. 
I can't see the employment insurance scheme getting off the ground now that we're staring into the barrel of a recession. And Hawaka Ikenoa has been watered down to the point of meaninglessness. And it's, it's this idea that you're dealing with good faith counterparties when you're talking about the sort of ruling business class of New Zealand who aren't going to act in their own interest. And like, this isn't even coming from a place of, I think all of these businesses are, you know, malevolent forces. They are acting exactly as you would expect them to act. They're acting in the interests of their class and their shareholders. Yeah. Stop giving them the opportunity to slow your agenda down. And I'm hoping it's not too late. And I think maybe as we pivot to, to talking about um, the sort of interregnum that we've just been through and, and now Hipkins' leadership is I do want to get, I'm trying my hardest to get out of the Duma mindset that this kind of narrative that we see on the centre-right and I think some of the furthest far left or actually across the board of a kind of the inevitability of Chris Luxon, um, which I really think is deeply unhelpful. Um, and I also think it's factually incorrect, um, but we can we can come to that, is I really hope Labour start to turn the corner and do what Labour parties are good at, which is not going to business breakfasts. Yeah, and I just want to also um, talk about um, the perspective, you know, from um, the beneficiaries of Aotearoa, people on the benefit. Um, their debt has ballooned to an unprecedented high. And this is the debt that people owe to the Ministry of Social Development. It's crossed a billion dollars. It increased so much during COVID and people are borrowing money basically to survive. So it's like, it's not good enough from a labor, uh, labor government when you see that simultaneously, you know, uh, over the two years of COVID, um, the rich have gotten significantly richer at the same time, the poorest have gotten significantly more in debt. So over the two years of COVID, $400 million more in debt. And currently, um, the debt to the MSD is standing at over a billion dollars. And, you know, the food banks are having more and more, much more traffic these days. Um, people are feeling, t feeling it really difficult having it really hard at the moment and this is not acceptable for a labor government in a privileged country like New Zealand that benefited from a colonial system that has so much wealth it's just not good enough and I just want to also address you know the um, big narrative about um, you know the threats that Arden have been has been getting or you know the uh, the very loud minority of people who've been really nasty towards her. Yeah, let's move into that because that's been a really mm. large part of the narrative over the last few days. Yes. Why Arden has stood down. Yes, you know, in my perspective, um, as an observer, feminist observer of Ardern's leadership in the last five and a half years or so, what it has pro proven to me is actually New Zealanders are, are pretty supportive of women in leadership. If you consider her success, um, you know, an unprecedented MMP success in 2020, people completely um, trusted her leadership, especially over COVID. And I think this sort of noise from is coming from a very small minority. I don't think that was the decisive reason for, for her stepping down. She herself says that. 
And in my view, if you look at um, the mainstream media in New Zealand, I disagree with many people on the left that they were the, one of the reasons why she was getting attacked. I think that in my time observing uh, the media while she was a prime minister, the media has been complimentary towards her. Um, in, in fact, even, you know, way too complimentary to a point where they were not holding her to account in the interests of the struggling people. So I completely dismiss or I not dismiss, but I resist this narrative or I disagree with this narrative. Um, I think it was, where was this coming from? It wasn't from mainstream media. Maybe in social media, this happens. But Arden is a seasoned and experienced politician uh, right now. Like even before she came became uh, prime minister, she was in parliament for, I don't know, nearly a decade, was it? Um, during that time, she would have been you know, exposed to the misogynistic attacks um, uh, from this really loud minority of, you know, horrible people. But um, she, she would be, you know, uh, seasoned and she understands that a vast majority of New Zealanders actually, and she said, that, she says this as well, vast majority of New Zealanders supported her, um, encouraged her and um, gave her, you know, the biggest mandate since the beginning of MMP. So I think this was a triumph for women's leadership. And um, I don't think that this, you know, um, this narrative is accurate. I think by and large media has been a complimentary and supportive of her leadership. And so has a vast majority of New Zealand. And um, yeah, so yeah, I'm a bit confused by this narrative because that's not how I assess it. Yeah, one of the most amusing things about it, and look, we're not, I want to be very clear that I'm not discounting um, or disagreeing with the fact that she had, um, and, and you know, women politicians in general get a, a huge amount of pretty horrible abuse um, and death threats and 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 the like, you know that that's just that's on record. That is a a fact um, that exists. But to see her stand up on the podium and say this is not why I have uh, chosen to step down, and immediately the range of supporters and people in the media uh, just start imagining scenarios as to um, the abuse causing her to step down. Um, as if she doesn't have any agency around that, uh, as if she is like yeah. both this incredibly strong leader who they've been supporting and, and boosting for six years, uh, but now is uh, completely broken to the extent that she can't even admit it on stage over the um, over these trolls abusing her. Um, what what in anything in her performance as as leader would give any credence to that that I know, know exactly that she's not incredibly personally resilient you know yeah, I, I, it's yeah. a nonsense yeah it yeah. is and I, the even more amusing thing to me is the way that a range of media and people in uh, particular industries um that are adjunct to the media uh started uh commenting in think pieces uh and on radio about how they too Oh yes, this abuse is actually aimed at us as well, um, and trying to capture some part of this narrative, even to the extent that Chris Luxon was saying, "Oh yeah, I think I probably get it as bad," you know, um, and other radio hosts saying, "Yes, oh man, it's so hard being in the media um, and getting abused all the time." Yeah, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, why, why it really pulls the mask off the the reasons for why this narrative is being pushed. We we know this stuff exists, but it's it's not 
something that you necessarily have to be dealing with. And it's not the overwhelming um, response of the public to what you're doing. I it felt self-indulgent sometimes when I saw it. Again, very, very clear. Ardern is saying, this is not it. This is not the reason why. And then you've got all these people saying, this is the reason why. This is definitely the reason why. And it's the reason why I find it hard too. Like, okay, mate, let, let her... Let her live her own truth, at least. Um, let's do that. That's that's the kind of thing that you would like to say to her while she was leaving. Um, why not continue with that narrative? Why kind of use this as an expedient way to push your own uh, narrative or your own industry? Um, there's a lot of really weird stuff about how um, it it was Russian misogynists and shit. Like, that, that should be laughed out of the room. Of, as like, as if we don't have plenty of domestic misogynists. Um, who are, you know, subjecting what are you her doing? Own, you know, like you know, media to that abuse. Um, this idea that there are three hundred fifty thousand people on Telegram all calling for the noose. Like that's not that's not how that works. You can't you can't generalize to that extent, and it it doesn't help the conversation to do that. It's the same sorts of rhetoric that your opponents are using to drive this wedge between like these two political teams, and it's really frustrating that we're having those kind of conversations instead of asking, okay, but why do we think this actually is? If, if you think that we can't rely on her own words to discuss, and, and I want to be clear as well, like just because she said it wasn't uh, the reason why, it doesn't mean it wasn't a factor. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't the reason why. You know, there's an expediency to what she's saying as well. There could be any number of reasons we may never know. In the end, it's her individual decision. And that's just the way it is. We can we can try and figure out why that is. Is it helpful? Not really. Maybe from a historical analysis point of view. I think if we are going to do it, though, we want to be strategic about it. We want to analyze it and use it as a way to predict what's coming in the political future of New Zealand. Um, and this comes back to stuff we we're saying right at the start, um, which is this is probably electoral calculus. And Ardern hinted at that as well. She yeah. said, "I don't have I I don't have enough in the tank. I think La I, I think Labour can, are, are going to win this. Essentially, we maybe need a change of direction, uh, and I think that's a totally okay reason mm. as a political leader to stand out. And honestly, and maybe this sort of helps us turn to kind of where where we think things are going." Um, between Little's decision at the beginning to have the foresight to go, I am not the man for this job, and Ardern to similarly have the kind of one step ahead thinking of, I I don't have this in me anymore. I am not doing my party and, you know, the people who I think the party the best wants to lead uh, the best job. The honestly just maturity the 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 presence of mind that that being able to do that takes knowing that it is is going to to you know trigger a lot of uncertainty i have a tremendous amount of respect for that decision and i think honestly what is the point of metaphysical speculation about what's in her heart she's given us her reasons <laughs> i've never thought of her as a dishonest politician it, you know of the many critiques i have that's not one of them I will take her at her word on that. And yeah, and honestly, let's be real, probably some of the the, the refusal to accept her reasons would be like, oh, 
oh, it must be because, you know, the, the pressure was all so much. It's like, that's just gender bias of like, who said of John Key, it's like, oh, it was all of the, um, the Twitter trolls getting yeah. into John Key's head and all of the abuse that he copped over small incidents on online. And the, People are even saying like, she'd had assassination threats and stuff like oh and i i I don't actually want to downplay that because i i I think we do need to remember that that is that's real that is that is that is real and it's new i think that's the 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 intensity and the reality of it um isn't something previous leaders have had to face and it's it's, we've yeah yeah. i'm I'm not sure about that maybe there is an increase in that, but in my, you know, time observing politics, um, if you're the prime minister of a country, you're going to be subject to uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, there will be polarized people who think that you are the reason for all the problems and therefore you need to be eliminated. Um, if you think like the, you know, the presidency of Trump, for example, the media themselves, like <laughs> the uh, you know, the so-called center-left media in the USA themselves were engaging in all sorts of discussions about, you know, him um, uh, body shaming him. All those sorts of things were happening with Trump out in the open uh, by the mainstream media itself. Um, So yeah, a lot of leaders face this. Um, Not, you know, when I first came to New Zealand, um, one, this, there was this talk about uh, John Key and, um, I remember like um, there was news about, I don't know if it was Kim.com coming on campus and then and everyone in the club went, fuck John Key. <laughs> John Key. It was a, like, if you're the leader, if you're a prime minister of a country, <laughs> abuse is part of that, the, you know, it comes as part of the role. And, um, and like, if you look at protest movements, um, against a particular government you often see you know in in france they bring out the guillotine (laughs) onto the streets so it's like um protests are necessarily there there will be elements of that sort of stuff going on in protests so um in india for example protests are so common you know the kind of shock that new zealand had for the parliamentary protests was novel to me because it was like (laughs) this protest in front of the um, parliament or the, you know, the legislative bodies in India almost every day. And um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, I I don't think that, and I I really dislike the direction it's going. So if we, we saw after the parliament protests, we saw the media and the government uniting (laughs) against the, you know, against this, uh, the protesters and the media became the biggest protector rather than um you know the fourth estate of the democracy that holds the government to account they became the protectors of the government and um the prime minister and so forth and yeah this is just um the fire fire and fury for example that um documentary where um you know the media is talking about all the uh violence that the the 
that these powerful people are facing. I would like to turn the focus away from these powerful and privileged people and look at the violence facing uh, the most marginalized people in our country. Think about the, the woman that got raped in the emergency housing situation in, you know, in New Zealand and how much insecurity a lot of women, poor and working class women are in and the kind of real you know, violence they're de- facing every single day in their life. Scale of that right yeah and and now everyone on the left in the media we're just focusing on all oh, these poor you know poor Jacinda or poor I don't know AOC or all these powerful poor people no actually you know when you look at the ground there are many poor and working class women in reality facing material hardship and actual impacts actual violence in already happening to them on a daily yeah. basis so yeah, that's where and, we should focus. And this is what I was getting at around the narrative. Like it, it feels like it, everyone talking about it is trying to pull it to themselves. And it's, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it takes us into a, in a direction that's useful for us. Um, and I don't think it helps us predict anything. I don't think it helps us have a clear eyed view of, of what the political environment or what political outcomes are going to be. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't have stepped down. There are a range of things that are now possible because of that. Um, So we talked earlier about the fact that there are at least a couple of major policy uh, planks that she has ruled out ever doing while she's leader of the Labour Party. Those are no longer the case. And I'm not saying (laughs) that um, Hipkins is going to go out and do a wealth tax um, on Monday morning, but he hasn't ruled it out. Uh, And there are a range of things uh, with the direction and the way that Robertson and Ardern operated that were, if not openly ruled out, it was clear they weren't going to do it. And there were things that were were often uh, battered away where they, oh, no, we've got to bring down debt, right? Like it was very clear David Cameron-esque uh, austerity thinking. There is a, even with Hipkins as like ostensibly the continuity candidate, Uh, the the best continuity candidate available, there's a chance there to shift that if they decide that that's where the votes are. And again, we don't know what their inputs are. We don't know what they are thinking about this yet. We're going to find out in the next couple of weeks, I imagine, what direction they think they need to take. But Ardern and Robertson had a very clear agenda. They had a very clear, in reality, set of policies that they're trying to enact and those weren't particularly progressive, despite anything they might have said at any given point on the campaign trail. We are, we are I, in a hard break from that. I don't think it's going to take weeks or months to realise. I think at the first press conference Hipkins gives after he's um, confirmed as, as Prime Minister, someone is going to ask him, are you going to rule out a capital gains tax? Like, we are going to have <laughs> that. No, no, I'm not kidding. I, I agree with you. I yeah. put money on it, and that's going to be a re- the way he fields those kind of questions about where he is going to take the party and the government. I think, uh, yeah, it is it is an opportunity for a, um, a break point. I don't think it's going to be radical or dramatic, but I I think it could be a change in direction, even if it's not a change in, in level. And, you know, I he's not going to come out and say capital gains tax is something we're taking to the country, but he has a wider degree of, of flexibility yes. than Ardern 
had. Um, so it will be interesting to see where he takes that, whether he's like, well, that's not Labour Party policy. Well, that doesn't mean you're not going to do it, especially if you are very dependent on the Green Party and Te Pāti Māori um, if you, um, you know, make it to October. So I think the, the horizons are somewhat wider there. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know very much about the guy beyond what you what we all saw of him during the uh campaign uh oh sorry not the campaign the 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 COVID response um and sort of what we've seen of him in the last few days so it will be yeah interesting to see at those kind of early scene setting moments whether he get and this is now opinion not not analysis on my part but whether he gets that what Labour were doing wasn't working and whether being a diet slightly smileyer version of the National Party isn't going to work for them anymore because people will, if given the option between, you know, fake national and real national, people will go for the hard stuff. And that's been um, shown in the polls for the last 12 yeah. months. And however, I the, the core problem of electoral politics in New Zealand is that we have on average progressive opinions but on average a conservative identity and like unpicking that knot is kind of the central challenge of, of being a yeah. party leader Ardern had her particular approach to it and having spent the last 45 minutes kind of trashing it um there are wins there and it, it within certain limitations had a success of a kind but whether Hipkins can have the he appears to be a smart guy I'm sure he knows all of this but whether he can take this as an opportunity to change course, offer people the things that, you know, um, if people haven't read it, I really recommend Henry Cook's um, Substack on what swing voters in New Zealand actually think. That was uh, a really interesting one and people got pissed off by it. Yes. And it's it's because it there are some things in there that like are not nice to read if you are pretty far on the left in terms of what the Labour Party has to appeal to. But at the same time, if you're an austerity gremlin, um, it's also pretty upsetting reading for you too, because that's not, where, that's not where, and this is the are. thing, Hipkins needs to win back, give or take four to 5% of the votes that National currently have. He does not have to get all the way back to 50. And I think he is free from Ardern and Robertson's kind of psychological need to get back to unprecedented levels of popularity, I, I hope, and can go, right, how do I get to 50% plus one? And to do, you know, taking someone in the Labour Party at, in good faith that they believe in progressive change um, at whatever pace um, oh, a risky move. They, <laughs> that they believe in it, if you want to get to get in and do the most of that that you can um yeah it's it is going to be interesting i think that the two big decisions that labor have coming up on that front now number one is who to choose as a deputy um it's probably not a lot of point in speculating i think kitty allen is i'd i'd probably the one i'd 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 have um my money on but um you know people have also suggested Nai mahuta um or even Kamal sepaloni could be in the frame uh for that um so there's that, but the the big one is what happens to Robertson. Yeah, and me too. Even if even if they keep him, what the budget looks like now, whether Hipkins continues with Ardern's, and you know, 
it's interesting how things appear in retrospect, but Ardern's big idea for the Labour Party conference was a bonfire of the policies. And it's like, I really hope that was just a sign of, you know, kind of where she had got to personally um, in terms of not having the the drive to continue that the the central theme of of the kind of party internal working was tell me a list of things we're not going to do anymore that <laughs> yeah. um if they can get away from that kind of thinking if they can get away from that kind of inevitable defeatism of well what we need to do to to win is moderate in a do nothing way as opposed to moderate in a do things that are popular way so that's i guess maybe the hopeful case I think this is actually the key uh, piece of analysis that um, people should be following, like that Labour should be following, is with Ardern Robertson, the continuity case um, can work, you know, hold it steady, um, play that single percent, get in with uh, Te Pāti Māori. With a hard change of leadership to, let's be honest, someone who doesn't have the, the profile or charisma of Jacinda Ardern, there needs to be something on offer. Like there has to be. If, if you're going to mobilize people and get the vote out, you need to offer something. There needs to be something on the table. There needs to be something new. There needs to be something to excite people. If you don't have that, you haven't got a campaign now. Previously, you could maybe lean back on, on the Ardern stuff. Um, you could lean back on uh, Ardern and Robertson's record. They cannot do that now. If they try and do that now, it looks shit. It looks like a fucking got a trailer full of crap um, that they're trying to drag behind them. Hipkins now needs to stamp his claim on the leadership and on a new direction for the Labour Party if he's going to, yeah, even even bring a campaign to people later in 2023. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, that could look like a hard turn right, like if that's what him and his advisors think will win. I don't think that's the case in any way, shape or form. But it has, to, it has to be something. Especially on law and order, that really concerns me. He's... I mean, with Kitty Allen as well. If you well, know. this is this yeah. this is the thing. Like, I have quite a bit of time for, for both him and, and, and Alan, assuming that they um, are the leadership team. But on justice issues, he's a former crim- criminologist, and in her justice profile um, portfolio, she's been variously not brave enough to take stands on things like hate speech um and pretty has has displayed some uh very um pro state surveillance um ideas um and it's very tempting to say oh no that's a good thing because you know crime is the number one issue in the media at the moment i would be interested to know if it's the number one issue well, actually, we know it's not the number one issue. Cost of living is the number one issue, um, at least the last time we saw polling on this. But um, with the media very focused on a, yeah. on a crime narrative, and I, the temptation for there to be a hard turn to the right there is is real, and it really worries me. Um, it worries me if it works, and it worries me if it doesn't. Um, they do need to be seen to be doing something about crime, but I, I hope they have the kind of wisdom and compassion to know that just, again, trying to be a, a slightly nicer version of the National Party isn't going to work because if people want to lock the bu- buggers up, they'll vote for the National Party. You've, yeah. you, you've got to offer contrast. There are, you know, there are, there are ways to do this as well. They could just stop holding the purse strings so tight. Like this is all, it's all resourcing. All this stuff is resourcing. 
it's it's an inability to spend on public services um and even as like if we're just looking at the state of play you know i'm not pro prisons um i'm very anti prisons but if you have a range of carceral services and and rehabilitation services which they've been introducing and you don't fund them shit's going to break um and they haven't been funding them and there hasn't been like sufficient training for the services that they purport to offer there is a an anti-austerity line they can take to this um and not a hard on crime line uh which could be effective and could be sold to the public um you mentioned the henry cook um analysis and it's probably one of the better pieces of policy and electoral analysis that i've seen from a new zealand pundit in a decade from from the proposed like from you know the objective space uh, obviously us on the left are just smashing out of the park every other week but one of the really interesting things about that and it harks back to what you were saying as well rusty is that the just bare majority of swing voters declared themselves or thought of themselves as slightly center right but their what they wanted in policy was very clearly social democrat uh so it was things like spending on education and health right like if they want those swing voters they need to just spend they need to spend um every other government uh during the covid crisis poured themselves into debt uh to ensure that things could stay up and running and I, i know like we're doing better than every other country at the moment but it comes back to what do we see in the future we we know that this put pressure on our health system because it was already underfunded we know the same for our education system like we know the same for every public resource and service and piece of infrastructure we provide this is why they're doing three waters and why they're do- why they're doing a um consolidated health system as well they know that there are structural like ongoing issues with a lack of resourcing and even if you know it's going to be more effective if they get those structures in place first before pouring the funding in they need to do something now if they're going to convince people you know what what i'm really hoping is that some of the narratives from the kind of center left and and further left are around the the tax situation um have started to get through we saw stuff from the ctu end of the year um in 22 um around windfall taxes like in in lieu of a a more consistent wealth tax just fucking get them they hit you already like these ceos like the ideas aren't gonna... that are, pick up the ideas that are lying around that they're just that's they're right there and they're like they're far better research than anything the business uh, round table i the new zealand initiative <laughs> um are thrown on the floor they're better than like what business new zealand is delivering like these are these are thought out there is a clear economic case for them to an extent that there just isn't for neoliberal um continu- continuity anymore yeah tax the big corporations just windfall tax and get like 2 or 3 billion dollars and pour it into public services i would argue that they already have the resources you know we are also there yeah cuz they're focused on fiscal responsibility and um i'm also critical of their approach to for example health uh reform they're trying some structural reforms but not really um reforms at the level of accessing health in that you know perhaps the most important uh roadblock uh for people accessing health is uh the doc dp fee and you know a left wing government should abolish that and have actually truly um universal healthcare so also free dental right 
Exactly. That was the next one I was going to talk about. And there's research um, that shows that it's actually um, more financially um, viable and makes sense. You, it will save money in the long term for the government. And um, it's also going to improve the quality of life for New Zealanders as a whole. But in particular, poor and working class people will benefit more because currently, you know, privileged people can pay that extra money to get their uh, teeth checked often. But that's not the case for poorer people. So uh, these are the kind of programs that we expect from uh, a Labour government, um, you know, the, they've got labor in their in their name. They need to at least in name look at the issues facing uh, poor and working class people in New Zealand, rather than focusing on fiscal responsibility and you know rather than trying to impress the wealthy. Like just the other day, we saw the figures of um, you know the money that wealthy are betting on um, on national and act regardless of all that Arden and Robinson have done for the wealthy which include a major significant. yeah significant transfer of wealth to the already wealthy um, and I would refer to Bernard Hickey's um, calculation of the two COVID um, years and he the article is called COVID winners and losers um, you can see that you know the indigenous folk the Maori, Pacific Islanders, um, women, these sorts of groups are the biggest losers of COVID and the biggest winners of COVID were the already wealthy. So Arden and Robertson have done everything to impress them. They, they ran in 2020 on dismissing the wealth tax and um, <laughs> they did that to the, you know, they ruined our dreams of a capital gains tax. They dismissed all the recommendations. I mean, a majority of the recommendations of the welfare expert advisory group. They did all these things to, to impress um, that wealthy class. And yet, you know, given the choice, they will choose the um, actual ones that openly support them yeah. rather than labor. Do you think the vitriol from trolls towards Ardern and labor is bad? Look at like, a corporate lobbyist <laughs> you know like these people are literally unhinged look at linkedin you know it is those it's, yeah. it's not people those, in the shadows. those 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 there is an overlap in that venn diagram <laughs> no <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm yeah i'm no, not like, kidding people who are saying the like eight out of ten fucked up version of their um opinions on linkedin are saying the 10 out of 10 fucked up version yeah. on twitter or yeah. facebook and look i've got analysis um that shows some of the very reasonable uh conservative uh pundits uh on twitter or other social media absolutely have incredibly abusive uh stock puppet accounts that they run and don't have good OPSEC for, so accidentally post on either way. You know, like there are a lot of people out there in this space who, who like who are very clear, it's a very clear like just class divide, who are the worst in the space. It's not just, it's not just counterspin, you know, they're they are they are very clearly insane um and and very clearly um toxic to the political environment, but not to the extent that just like some dude who owns a what what's the one that recently that was um showing up on twitter there was a um, bar in auckland doing a i can't remember whether the bar in auckland was a putting a dummy of our doing into a wood chipper party whether that was the bar in nelson but there are some insane. there are some the, the small business tyrant class out there absolutely 
despise this government. Oh. And they, There's know, a digital billboard a, um, company. Um, the CEO yeah, of oh, that is, is going yeah. around Twitter at the moment. You know, like these yes. are not unconnected people. These are people who are like right up there. Yeah. Um, they're not going to like you. They're not, they're never going to like you. You've done everything that and, you can to make them like you. And they, it goes beyond hate. It's a fixation for them. And these are, these are the reasonable ones. It's not, and this, this will be the interesting test, right? It's like the, the cover is, oh, with Ardern, it was just kind of this, this obsessive fixation with her that's underpinned by sort but of misogynistic attitude. And it's like, nope, they're going to do a different version. It won't be gendered in the same way with Hipkins. I don't know what angle it will come from. But guess what? Uh, he's it's a bully, a- uh, Rusty. We've already started to see stuff out of oh my God. Um, kind of PR types. How can you he was labeled as a tech dog. And he's going to have to leave that behind if, if he's going to be. If he was Labour's attack dog, there was no hope for us. Um, <laughs> like, Just wait it's going to be exactly the same. Because it's, right? it's not, um, well, and that could be where where it um, goes to that um, she, and this is this is why I, I don't actually blame her for not standing up given the health struggles she's had. Oh, that, she's tough as hell. That, she's tough as hell, but um, the target that's going to, sorry, that's a, bad turn of phrase um i mean being, it is for them isn't it but. yeah but this is the thing it's what i think we will see when after a week of kind of meet the new prime minister chris hipkins he's your dad's mate from upper heart we'll get a week of that and then it will be back to the regular diet of vitriol from those quarters yeah because it's not about personality or gender that's how it manifests it's about class interest <laughs> like I'm how long do we get suddenly... a picture of them eating something disgustingly do you reckon what's the what's the timer on that anyway two days two um, days yeah but I don't have much hope in uh Chris Hipkins uh, I don't think he's going to move left if anything he might I mean this is the conventional wisdom in uh Labour Party it seems uh when in doubt move right right <laughs> Um, so yeah, and lo- looking at his track record, right? So um, within Labour Party, he was he is one of the Labour right wingers, uh, firmly in the Arden Robertson camp, um, and he's not in the Labour left. Um, and also looking at his term as a as Education Minister uh, in the first uh, Arden government, um, he's the one who was quite you know shameless to to say sorry we're not doing fees free anymore sorry we're not doing postgrad allowance anymore so his track record isn't you know looking good if that's an indication then we can't really there's not much to be hopeful from yeah. his um, look I, I think the the thing that members of the Labour Party need to remember is that they're up against incredibly powerful incredibly rich uh, class interests and when it comes down to it, the way to defend yourself against that is mass movements, is to have the workers on your side. Because if you've got more people, you win on that basis. You know, you want a workers movement that can act as your shield when the other guys get their private armies. You know, like if we're if we're extrapolating all the way out. Yeah. And we, you know, we saw this um in, in Brazil recently, right? You know, it's it's been a long way to return for Lula in Brazil, immediately they try and like chase him down. Lula's like popularity on the ground is incredible. And the army there knows that, you know, he's got the public support. You cannot side with your natural enemies. 
And that is what business is to the Labour Party. And even if Labour doesn't think that's the case, even if they're trying to do third way and trying to, to walk that middle line, business doesn't think that way about Labour, and they never will. And here's my my question for the people who are like, oh, but business is going to, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to donate to the National Party. They're already, already, going, to, already going to do that. Yes, there are kind of like minor pinch points around supply chains that like if if you if they really wanted to do a second winter of discontent, um, they could do. But New Zealand capital is so small and so monopolistic and so dependent on the state that like we are just not in a situation like you are in the US or the UK or or Latin America where there is a kind of genuine power there that on the left if you you are on the center left in government you need to fear in a very serious way you need to be worried about international capital's reaction to certain budgetary decisions but what are they going to do if you they're going to complain about it of course they're going to complain about it but if you've brought people with you if you have that movement behind you if you're doing things that are popular back yourself and maybe i'm wrong maybe a government that seeks to improve people's lives is not what people want or at least it's what they say they want but it's not how they vote but if you're just going to if if all you have to offer is something negative and i think this comes to sort of the more immediate strategy rather than they can't just run on oh but national are so much worse national are so much worse it's like we know which is true by the way absolutely oh yeah no this this is the (laughs) other thing is like i always you know we get some flack from sort of the um laborist sort of people of like oh you're criticizing it's like yeah it's because it's because we care it's because i want you to do yeah. well i need i need national so much worse why don't you criticize them because it's obvious and clear what's and the it's point already happening you know and they're open about it yeah. national is open about their intentions labor you know is supposed to stand for the interests of the poor and the working class and the marginalized people and they're not and I think, you know, uh, just to tie into what you guys are saying, um, I think the responsibility of the left is to actually hold Labour to account rather than to, you know, be apologetic towards them uh, and, uh, and you know, carry their water, essentially. Yeah, it's not about um, uniting. It's not, oh, if you, show, if, if you don't show a unified front with us, then national win. Nah, mate, look, go and do your stuff. Go and, go and be positive about... Um, Labour's chances and Hepkins, go on, boost Hepkins, go for it, go, go, go crazy. You're going to need people on the left um, and the Greens and the Party Māori to, to get over the line this time. Let us do what we need to do to pull people um, into that. And in the meantime, you're telling us, asking us why we're not criticising National. Why are you criticising minority left opinions instead of criticising National and act yourself? You know, like, stop taking aim at your activist wing. It, it just, it's so frustrating to me. That's the thing. No normies out there in the real world, these five to 10% of people give a shit about internecian disputes between the politically engaged wings of the Labour and the Green Party. Why put, if you are on the centre of that debate, why put any effort into it? Like, and this, look, honestly, Ardern knifed some progressive policies in her time, but did not get into this shit in the way that, you know, Starmer or Biden or the people around Biden have overseas. She was focused in a positive way on putting a message in front of that was kind of consistent with her personality and, and her style in front of people. And it worked. 
like this is in the end the kind of success condition for third wayist parties and the, the thing that they always can come back with is yeah but we got elected it's like okay how are you going to make that work this time what's what is hipkins version of a positive agenda that can get enough people in the country to believe in it so that they can continue to they can continue to do the things that um they think are best and that the parliamentary and extra parliamentary further left can have a party in government that they at least have a prospect of dragging in a in a um, positive direction rather than having to go into a defensive crouch for six to nine years which is the alternative yeah i think we should wrap it up it's a this has been a long one but for good reason for good reason <laughs> it's a huge huge week right like yeah, yeah. and we'll talk about it more next week as well happen. i imagine after hipkins yeah. has have a chance to front the media a bit um provided he makes it past that uh vote as <laughs> as the sole runner <laughs> wouldn't that be embarrassing <laughs> Look, man, never count out the Labour Party's ability to fuck up. <laughs> um, any any final words from either of you? No, just that you know, there's so many, so much more to discuss, and <laughs> it's a shame that we have to finish it here. But uh, hopefully, you know, the listeners enjoyed uh, the discussion. Um, thank you for having me on. Something we can we can talk about more is no crying. Like no, you can you can you know want to farewell. Are done, but no getting upsetty, no hiding in a corner, no going, woe is me, mummy is gone. That's not an option. You've got to find, you know, we collectively need to find a way to keep making this work and doing whatever that is you do. Here's something horrendous that I'd never thought I'd say. Maybe you need to consider donating to the Labour Party if you can afford to, because they're broke as shit right now. Um, volunteer for the Greens to party Maori for causes outside of it. Again, it's the media narrative is about making Luxon inevitable and we need to resist that. So fucking chin up. Yeah. I think my final words for Labour Party in general is if you can't join and beat them, you know, like it, it isn't working, just fuck them up. Go and take take all their money. Take it up, like tax business to the hilt. Use that money to help the people and get them on side. Uh, activate that electorate hey that's been another week of one of 200 uh if you've enjoyed it uh share retweet uh send it to your grandparents um your aunts and uncles uh get coverage um help us build an audience patreon link in the summary as per usual you should be able to click through that and donate to us if you choose to we'll be back again next week uh might have some midweek stuff uh up in the air currently uh, but trying to get a bit more out as we begin 2023 and we move into election season. We'll catch you next weekend. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass on